0: Going on here. What did you guys do? Oh, it's a mess. It's everywhere. Yeah. Okay, okay. Gloria, get a mop. Bernie, pick that up. Start the theme music. Ugh. I Nothing new about the concept of, quote, independent film. Since the birth of moving pictures, anybody with money, time, and the ability to wrangle folks to step in front of a camera has been able to tell a story if they wanted to. It was the independent films of the late 1950s and 60s that gave way to the upstart dreamers that became New Hollywood, those names that we now take on as institutions that delivered their politics and feelings of the day through the medium of their art. The problem? They were actually too good. The movement itself of New Hollywood was co-opted by a new generation of studio heads, who could clearly see that talent was there, and they nurtured that zeitgeist of the era to make a profit. What started with high hopes and projects like Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde would soon morph into bigger, costlier studio productions. Films like The Godfather, Chinatown, at least before the culture could really wrap its head around what was coming. You see, films as done by studios like Jaws and Star Wars would then come along, and the age of the Artur director was out, and the age of blockbusters, that started. A new, and yet independent film never really went away but when people speak of independent films they don't think of you know films that were happening of the 50s and 60s no when you talk to someone my age a lot of people hear independent film and they go to the indie boom of the mid-1990s we're so quick to forget just how we had gotten from point A to point B in this world that we miss so many of the wonders of the journey as time goes on. But no matter, what we're talking about here is art. And very specifically, we're talking about one film that changed so many things over the last quarter century. I saw the movie Pulp Fiction for the first time in 1997 when the edited-for-TV version was broadcast as a Saturday night film. I was 15 at the time, and I was just starting to get into the films of Quentin Tarantino. And at the time, I was also reading a lot of the same pulpy crime novels that had inspired its director. So the following year, once I could drive and had full access to the family blockbuster account, and also an account that I had somehow wrangled through not having a credit card from a local mom-and-pop store... I began to work my way back and see as many films as I could. And then of course came the day. One fun weekend where my friend Matt, my brother, and myself were all hanging around alone on a weekend. And we rented and watched the fully uncut version of Pulp Fiction. And to the three of us, it was amazing. It was and has remained a favorite film of mine. I would watch it often in my high school days. For Christmas one year, I was gifted a color still from the film by my then-girlfriend, Vincent Vega, Winston Wolfe, Jules Winnefield, all posing together in a scene that actually was deleted from the original film. It had been signed by John Travolta, Harvey Keitel, and Samuel L. Jackson. And, as of this day, it sits on my shelf, not ten feet to the right of me as I record this now. When we were in college, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown were released as special edition DVDs, and my roommate and I made a special sojourn to the local Best Buy, each to purchase our own copies. Still in the days when we were desperate students and had to attempt to pay for goods and services with personal checks. But, hey, no matter... We had gotten what we had come for, and we left with the pop cultural classics that we enjoyed so, so much. But you know what the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's a little different. Geez. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just, just there, it's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a paper cup, I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer at McDonald's. And you know what they call a a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? No, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. What do they call it? They call it a Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call it, Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it a little Big Mac. A little Big Mac. (laughs) (laughs) What do they call it, Waffle? I don't know. I didn't go on a Burger King See, you gotta understand something. Upon its release, people loved Pulp Fiction. People also hated Pulp Fiction. It was deemed genius. It was deemed vile. It was hailed as cinematic brilliance. It was regarded as derivative drivel. It was groundbreaking. It was racist. It was postmodern. It was violent. No matter how you interpreted it, When it made its debut on May 21st of 1994, Pulp Fiction had unintentionally altered the way that films would be viewed and subsequently made. Quentin Tarantino became a household name. Miramax made its parent company, Walt Disney, an obscene amount of money. And, like all things, there were some unintended dark consequences as well. It led to the unchecked rise and the subsequent horrific abuse of people and power at the hands of one Harvey Weinstein. In retrospect, though, Pulp Fiction came around in a rather unassuming way. You see, Tarantino had already had his foot in the door. He had sold his script for Natural Born Killers, and then he had ended up selling and giving up on his desire to direct his own script for the film True Romance. He then directed his own film, Reservoir Dogs, which scored him a critical success with that first feature. Wanting to follow it up with something that would at least be reminiscent of the pulp crime stories that he had found in classic Black Mask magazines, Tarantino and his then friend and writing partner from the video store days, one Roger Avery, decided to sit down and write a script that they thought would be made into basically an anthology of shorts they realized rather quickly it wouldn't work. Nobody actually wanted shorts. So they would combine everything together to make this cohesive anthology, and they assumed they would get a third writer-director to join them in this effort. When that actually didn't materialize, the partners just basically expanded their original stories and created the film that we all now know. And for the most part, it remained that way. Speaking to his advantage, Quentin Tarantino had already had early interest in the script from his previous collaborator, Lawrence Bender. They had formed a company together called A Band Apart, but he also had actor Harvey Keitel on his side, and they had gone and successfully wooed Danny DeVito and his Jersey Films Company to come on board with financial support for the project that would be known as Pulp Fiction, but they still needed a main studio distributor. They had pitched the original concept to Columbia TriStar Pictures, which has now since become Sony Pictures Entertainment these days, and while they were initially greenlit for pre-production, the studio ended up putting a kibosh on the whole ordeal and put the film into turnaround. You see, then-studio chief Mike Medavoy was not a fan of the script, and the studio essentially wanted to make so many sweeping changes to the story that they would inherently destroy the structure of the film, They would have toned down the violence, and they would have had to have removed all references to drugs. Thus, the script was deemed unfilmable, and was considered too costly to continue on with. Hence, it was put into turnaround. Basically, they weren't going to do anything with it. So, a band of part films comes back in with Jersey films, and they take the script away, and they bring it over to Miramax, who had just been bought by the House of Mouse. Co-chairs the Weinstein brothers, Harvey and Bob, liked the script, and after agreeing to doing a modest budget of $8.5 million, it was going to be the first official film that would be greenlit by this new old distributor under Disney's leadership. I heard you did a pilot. That was my 15 minutes. What was it? It was a show about a team of female secret agents called Fox Force Five. What? Fox Force Five. Fox as in we're a bunch of foxy chicks. Force as in we're a force to be reckoned with. And five is in there's one, two, three, four, five of us. There was a blonde one, Somerset O'Neill. She was a leader. The Japanese fox was a kung fu master. The black girl was a demolition expert. French fox's speciality was sex. What was your special? Knives the character I played, Raven McCoy Her background was she grew up Raised by circus performers According to the show She was the deadliest woman in the world With a knife And she knew a zillion old jokes Her grandfather, an old vaudevillian Taught her And if we would have got picked up it would have worked in a gimmick Where every show, I would have told another joke you no know, animal jokes well we got the chance to say one because we only did one show tell me it's corny don't be that way tell me no nah, you wouldn't like it and i'd be embarrassed you'd be you told like 50 million people and you can't tell me i promise i won't laugh that's what i'm afraid of Vince. that's not what i meant you know it now I'm definitely not going to tell you because it's been built up too much. What a gem. Securing John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Ving Rhames, Eric Stoltz, Rosanna Arquette, Christopher Walken, and Bruce Willis, Tarantino was able to wrangle full credit for the writing of the film away from Roger Avery, which caused a minor rift between the two partners, but didn't break up the band. Tarantino himself would receive a written and directed by credit, whereas Avery would simply receive a story by credit. It was filmed in the fall of 1993, and it made its debut in May of 1994 at the Cannes Film Festival, with Miramax promoting the hell out of it the audience was rightly blown away. The antics of two hitmen, a washed-up boxer, a mob boss, his wife, and a fast-talking fixer, loaded with pop-cultural references, thoughtful conversations about music, film, and food, peppered with random violence and kitschy style. It was a game-changer. The film was awarded the Palme d'Or that year, which only further generated buzz, and reviews hit the trades, this film was going to be massive. It spent the summer playing film festivals all across Europe, creating even more interest. By the time it had its official release to the general public on October 14th of 1994, it was a bona fide hit. No, that's wrong. It was a mega hit. For a small independent film, Pulp Fiction was shot for again $8.5 million. Miramax ended up sinking in an additional $10 million to campaign and promote it at Cannes, and subsequently in other locations. This effort was rewarded by worldwide box office gross of $213 million. Not too shabby, eh? Pulp Fiction was nominated for seven Oscars at the 1995 Academy Awards. Nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor in Travolta, Best Supporting Actor in Samuel L. Jackson, Best Supporting Actress in Thurman, and Best Original Screenplay and Best Editing. It would end up only taking one award, and that was for Best Original Screenplay, with the Oscars going to both Tarantino and Avery. The loquacious Tarantino, at least for him, graciously tried to keep his comments short. But for those of you who didn't get to see it back in the day, this is where Avery really, well, let's just say he sort of squandered a rather important opportunity in his career. And the Oscar goes to... Quentin Tarantino, Roger Avery for Farmschurch's. This has been a very strange year. I can definitely say that. Um, you know what? I was trying to f- think, um, I think this is probably the only award I'm going to win here tonight, so I was trying to think, maybe I should just say a whole lot of stuff right here, right now, just get it all in my system. Because no, no, I thought about no. all year <laughs> long, everything building up and everything, and just blow it all, just tonight. Just, Just say everything. But I'm not. Thanks. <laughs> I want to thank my beautiful wife, Gretchen, who I love more than anything in the world. And I really have to take a pee right now, so I'm going to go. Thank you. <laughs> so inevitably, Tarantino was hailed as a genius. Miramax, and more importantly, the Weinsteins, were now deemed to be the hot studio to work with, and what's more, the two were considered to be Hollywood's new movers and shakers. Tarantino and producer Bender had an obligation to assist Avery in producing his own directing effort with a little heist film called Killing Zoe, and that's going to be a future episode for sure. That project had been in the works since Reservoir Dogs was underway, and it was simultaneously screened at Cannes in 1994 with Pulp Fiction, but it was released in August of that same year. It had already ended up being worked out of the theaters before Pulp Fiction made its big debut, and once they had received their awards, Avery and Tarantino's working partnership was disrupted by a falling-out over a cameo that Quentin Tarantino had made in a little 1994 film by Rory Kelly, Sleep With Me. He was asked to be a guy who's holding court in the background of a party, and Tarantino, not knowing what to say, ended up, quote, improvising a humorous antidote about how Top Gun had this homoerotic undertone between both the Iceman and Maverick. And it killed. The problem? Avery had come up with that very monologue, and he was already planning on using it in one of his scripted projects. While they had since buried the hatchet, it was after that falling out of Quentin Tarantino using that intellectual property of Roger Avery's, they have not collaborated since. Uh, Baby, please, honey, we gotta hit the fucking road, get on! I'm sorry. Come here, come here. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You were gone so long, I started to think dreadful thoughts. Oh, I'm sorry, sweetie. I didn't mean to worry. Everything's fine. How was your breakfast? It was good. Did you get the pancakes? The no, blueberry pancakes? I didn't have blueberry pancakes. I had to get buttermilk. I'm um, you sure you're okay? Honey, since I left you, it is, this has been without a doubt the single weirdest fucking day in my life. Come on, hop on. I'll tell you all about it. Come on, get on. Gotta go, gotta go, come on. Who's motorcycle is this? It's a chopper, baby. Who's chopper is this? Zed's. Who's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. So one thing was absolutely clear. The floodgates had officially sprung open, ushering in a raving horde of both indie films, crime-loving directors, Desperate film students, all bringing their best imitations, their subpar offerings, but in some cases, actually some fantastic flicks. They were pulp fiction knockoffs, imitators, films that were attempting to copy the quirky postmodern style just abounded wherever you turned. In a short 10-year span, And these are just the ones I'm attempting to name off the top of my head. This is no way a fully comprehensive list. These are just the ones I feel comfortable speaking on. All of these movies came forth. 1995 saw Destiny turns on the radio. An exercise in pure maddening frustration. It's 102 minutes of metaphysical crime that also tries to weave into the story a dream pregnancy, a failed heist, and the literal embodiment of manifested destiny, played by Quentin Tarantino, who comes into town driving a classic car on his way to Las Vegas. It is a decent 90s cast that is completely wasted, and it is a total bomb. It's got Nancy Travis, Dylan McDermott, Jim Belushi, oh, so, so rough. The film, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. It's a very problematic, but a very interesting film, and we're actually going to cover it here this month. Now, I will note in 1995, some people like to mistakenly lump the film, get shorty in here with these Pulp Fiction knockoffs, but I would argue Barry Sonnenfeld's crime comedy is actually very faithful to the Elmore Leonard source novel it was based on, and that was a novel that was written in 1990. So I will say, if anything, Tarantino, who himself is a huge Elmore Leonard fan, has been cribbing from Elmore Leonard to write his witty dialogue, and that all came from the king of the casual comedy crime novel. So, I'm not including it here in this list. 1996 saw Two Days in the Valley debut in theaters, which is another very problematic film that we will be covering this month. Then there was American Strays. That's a crime dramedy film starring Eric Roberts, Luke Perry, and Jennifer Tilly, all trying to tie three crime stories together, converging in a small Southwest diner. Underworld was released in 1996, Oof, that is a crime comedy about a criminal looking to get vengeance on those who had a hand in murdering his father. Dennis Leary, Joe Mantegna, and Annabella Sciorra. It is 95 minutes that will not be coming back to me any time soon. Albino Alligator was also released in 1996. It's a better-than-average neo-noir that was directed by the then-not-yet-disgraced Kevin Spacey. It has an actual amazing cast, including Matt Dillon, Gary Sinise, Faye Dunaway, M. Emmett Walsh, Viggo Mortensen, and William Fichtner. Oh, also, Joe Mantegna's in that one, too. Joe Mantegna was everywhere. 1997, Suicide Kings made its debut, or, as I like to call it, episode 12 of this podcast. That's some good shit go check it out 1997 also saw eight heads in a duffel bag that was a crime comedy that again is a waste of a really decent cast on a one-note concept joe pesci george hamilton christy swanson diane cannon and david spade all try their best but ooh, it really doesn't doesn't go very far 1998 the brits got involved Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels made its debut, and that is the film that made Guy Ritchie's career and in turn sparked a new wave of British gangster films that attempted to emulate its own success. You have intertwining stories about drugs, poker, and the theft of two antique shotguns that all come together to make for a very entertaining picture. Starring Dexter Fletcher, Nick Moran, Jason Statham, Vinnie Jones, and Sting, I would tell you that is one you should absolutely go see. 1998 also saw the debut of Phoenix, which is a weird little film by Danny Cannon. It's a rough go of trying to apply that same hip formula to a group of corrupt cops that are out, obviously, in the desert city. Ray Liotta, Anthony LaPaglia, Jeremy Piven, and Daniel Baldwin all try their best, but it's just kind of a mess of a movie. 1998 wrapped with The Big Hit. That was... A film we're actually going to cover this month, and it is an attempt to cash in on both the Hong Kong influence of Gun Fu, brought over by executive director John Woo, with this very, very problematic film that is trying to meld both hitman comedy with interesting action fun. It's oh it's a mess. So yeah, we're gonna be we're gonna be doing that one. 1999, Saw the Picture Go, directed by Doug Lyman in an attempt to show he can have some hip crime bona fides and also try to dodge the sophomore slump uh, after he had finished with Swingers in 1996. Again, three intertwining plots all around one single night. We see the search for ecstasy, two gay actors trying to understand who's cheating on who, and of course, a very angry bouncer starring Desmond Askew, Jay Moore, Scott Wolfe, Sarah Polly, Timothy Oliphant, Katie Holmes and Tay Diggs, Melissa McCarthy, Brecken Meyer, and again, William Fichtner. It's not a bad movie per se, but it's a film that just hasn't aged well. Last, for nineteen ninety nine, the Boondock Saints. That's gonna be yet another film we cover this month. It is a problematic movie in its own right, with a backstory that more than makes up for anything you see on the screen, and it's going to be both interesting and tragic when we cover it. Bay of the Gun. That was a Christopher McQuarrie movie. He's the guy that wrote The Usual Suspects, and this was his first time directing. A strange and violent tale about two low-level operators who end up kidnapping and ransoming a surrogate mother for a mob boss and his spoiled wife all while a seasoned mob fixer attempts to return the situation to at least the status quo starring ryan felipe benicio del toro juliet lewis and james khan i will say this you could do better for a tarantino violent ripoff the rest of 2000 i would argue belongs to the british they consistently delivered this year Snatch came out. That was the sequel to Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, with Guy Ritchie yet again helming it. You get more of the same characters returning, plus they added Benicio Del Toro, Dennis Farina, Jason Statham, Vinnie Jones, and Brad Pitt back into the mix. Then came Love, Honor, and Obey, a black comedy set in the crime world. It's actually quite good. Ray Winstone, Jude Law, Johnny Miller, Sadie Frost, Rice Ivins, Kathy Burke. If you want a story that involves karaoke, small-time gangsters, a wedding, and a heap of missing coke that ends up sparking a turf war that spirals out of control between two rival gangs, look no further. Then, one of my all-time favorites, Sexy Beast. British crime, black comedy, and a future episode for sure on this show. First time movie for director Jonathan Glazer. It starred Ray Winstone, Ben Kingsley, Ian McShane, James Fox, and Amanda Redman. And it's all about a retired thief who is menaced by his angry former boss who will not take no for an answer. 2003. Yeah, we're going to jump ahead. Intermission. Still another British movie, starring Cillian Murphy, Kelly MacDonald, Colin Farrell, Cole Meaney. It is a hodgepodge of of slice-of-life stories, very Pulp Fiction-esque, that revolve around a bunch of would-be thieves, a blowhard cop, a married couple, and an angry bus driver as they all just try to figure out what's going on with their day-to-day existence. Then, 2004, adapted from a stellar novel, Layer Cake, directed by Matthew Vaughn. You have a pre-James Bond Daniel Craig here, a young Tom Hardy, Cole Meany, Michael Gambon, all starring in a story about a London drug trade and how one man's dreams of retirement are suddenly quashed by the interference of both some Serbian thieves, the mob, and a warehouse full of stolen pills. Oh, I can't talk today. Maybe I'm just having an issue. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Again, I'm going to stop there. Just keep in perspective, these are just from the first decade post-Pulp Fiction's release. And even crazier, these are just the ones that I can name off the top of my head. These are the ones I know something about and have seen. There are a myriad of other films that were compared to Pulp Fiction in the day, and they were lumped in as either being clones, or, for good or ill, they were boosted or derided for their association, particularly depending on the mood of the reviewer of the day. And honestly, how shamefully the various filmmakers who tried to ape the source of that film's swagger... I'm not even getting into the weird parody films that came out or all of the jokes that were made. Regardless, Pulp Fiction, for the last 26 years, has been a cultural touchstone, and it has made an indelible mark on pop culture and cinema in general. I would like to tell you the LSCE is going to invite you to join us for the month of September as we look to some of these films that didn't quite live up to the film they were so clearly influenced by, yet are still worthy and interesting concepts in their own right. Please join us as we kick off the month of September with our new theme, A Pulpy Mess, and we hope to see you there. So that's going to wrap things up here for this bonus episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like us, please, I would hope, give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts. Hit that subscribe button. Or, hey, wherever you're listening, just subscribe there. Swing by. Check out our website, thelscep.com. That's where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you please. And hey, feel free to like the lists that we're a part of. Give us a boost in the old ratings. You know, more reviews and increased likes, that affects how those marvelous algorithms work and make us more searchable. And then we can share these films with more people. And you want that, don't you? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaxperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to even have a more personal interaction or wish to contribute a segment in the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there. Please keep washing your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody.